chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and let's just read verse 8, and then we'll have a word of prayer. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, me, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be together in this place and to worship you and to sing praise to your name. And Lord, this morning, we'll just take a few moments to think of uh, little Esme this morning. We pray that you'd be with um, Bobby and Sarah at this time as well and the, the family. And Lord, we pray that you would have your hand upon uh, Esme, that you give the doctors wisdom and guidance. And Lord, we pray that uh, the, the healing would be swift, the recovery would be swift, Lord, and that uh, soon they'd be able to uh, take her home, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that, Lord, you would just uh, continue to undertake there. May you... Uh, be seen to work in all this, Lord, we pray, for your glory. And Lord, we pray now as we uh, continue the service and as we come around your word, Lord, we pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit. Lord, you would give me wisdom and guidance from on high, that, Lord, this morning everything I say would be your words, would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts that we might learn of you today, and that we might leave this place singing your praise. And we pray this in your Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> now, last Sunday morning, if you remember, we began to look at chapter 6 here, and we saw the appointment of the first ever deacons of the church. We saw these seven men who were chosen and appointed to take care of the administration of the church. We saw how those men that were chosen were to be more than just <clears throat> you know, random people chosen. They weren't, it wasn't a popularity contest. These men who were chosen were to be spiritually qualified to fulfill the role or the office of a deacon. Just read verse 3 with me. It says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so these men had to be of honest report, they had to be full of the Holy Ghost, and they had to be full of wisdom. And one of the men that's chosen is this man, Stephen. As we said last week, Stephen is given special mention in verse 5 when he's listed with the others. It says in verse 5, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And so he's given a little extra bit about, after, about him after his name. He's told a little extra. It says he's a man of faith and a man of the Holy Ghost. And the chapter, as the chapter now continues, we begin to understand why it is that Luke gives him that little little extra description why it is that luke gives him special mention now we begin to understand what it is about his ministry that stood out about his service for the lord you see stephen you know even though he was called to serve tables he was called to be a deacon to deal with the administration of the church you know stephen wasn't limited to this it's not as if that's all he did now, it seems that he fulfilled the role of a deacon so well that the Lord gave him more to do. The Lord said, I have a wider role for you to do. You know, he was faithful in little, and so the Lord entrusted him with much. And God now empowers Stephen and uses Stephen mightily to his glory. You know, God had a special plan for this man. Now, Stephen, as we know, would become the very first martyr for the faith. 
you know, following his death, the church would be dispersed and the gospel would be spread throughout the world. The gospel would be spread to the Gentiles and to us. Indeed, Stephen becomes an important man in the history of the church, an important man in the, in the history of the spread of the gospel message. In verses 8 to 15 here this morning, we get a glimpse of his faithful ministry. We see Stephen here faithfully proclaiming the truth and facing great opposition for his faith. And so as we consider this passage this morning, we see in Stephen an example of faithfulness for each of us to follow. And so notice first, if you would, Stephen's faithful service. Stephen's faithful service. Verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now, as we said in the introduction, Stephen's ministry was not limited to serving on tables or the administration of the church. He would see Stephen go forth in power and he faithfully now witnesses for the Lord. In verse 8, we're told that Stephen was full of faith and power and he did great miracles, great signs and wonders among the people. Now, before this time in the book of Acts, the only ones that we've seen performing miracles are the apostles. And now we see Stephen... This man full of the Holy Ghost is empowered to perform miracles. Okay, God gives him this, uh, this power in the name of Christ. He's able to perform these signs and wonders. You know, the purpose of these miracles would have been, as we've seen before, to get the, att- the attention of the people. Okay, whenever we see someone in the Word of God performing miracles in the name of the Lord, it's always to get the people's attention so that people understand this man is God's man. This man is speaking the truth. Indeed, this was no different with Stephen. You know, Stephen is performing the miracles. It's not just that he's doing party tricks. Okay, Stephen is performing miracles to get the attention of the people so that he then can preach and teach, that he can witness for the Lord. And in particular, Stephen has been preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He's been going around at the place of worship and he's been preaching and teaching in these places. And this quickly um, arouses opposition against him. Verse 9, read with me, it says, "Uh, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. We read here in verse 9, that then there arose certain of the synagogue. The words, then there arose here, mean that they stood up against him, or they opposed him. You know, they didn't like the preaching and teaching of Stephen. They didn't like the message that he was presenting, and so they opposed him. They rose up and spoke against him. They questioned him. We're told here that those, the ones opposing him were from, uh, first of all, the synagogue of the Libertines. Now, the word Libertine here means freed men. Okay, it's a Roman term. And it signified Jews who had been Roman captives, or their parents had been, and they had been set free, and they'd come back to the nation of Israel. They come back, in particular here, to Jerusalem. And so these ones, having obtained their freedom, 
had come back and evidently they'd set up their own place of worship, their own synagogue to meet and to um, worship the Lord. Now, the relation of the other groups in this verse here is not clear. Okay, because the verse goes on, it says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. What I mean is that it's not clear here whether we're talking about one synagogue, the synagogue of the Libertines, where these four nations are represented, okay, people from all these other four nations, okay, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Cilicia and Asia are all attending. So one synagogue where these four uh, groups of people are meeting together or whether we're talking about five synagogues. You know, the Libertines have their own, the Alexandrians have one, Cyrenians have one, Cilicia and Asia. And then there is also the opinion that there is two synagogues mentioned here in this verse. One for the first three groups, the Libertines, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and one for the remaining two, the Cilicians and those from Asia. Now, the Greek construction of the verse seems to favor an understanding of two. There seems to be a divide there after the first three, and it seems to favor the idea of two synagogues. But the reality is we can't know for sure. And I read and studied this for a while this week. I read commentator after commentator, and no one can definitively say which way it is, whether it's one, five, two. Some other people said three and four. Okay, no one really knows whether we're talking about one or multiple synagogues here in this verse what we can say for sure is that jews from various different nations had come back to jerusalem they resided in jerusalem and that these ethnic groups had their own synagogues okay they'd set up their own places of worship where they would meet together according to josephus the historian there was 480 synagogues in jerusalem at this time and so it's not unreasonable here to assume that verse 5 is talking about five synagogues representing each ethnic group. But as I said, we can't say for sure. Okay, and so I'm going to leave it at that. But the point is that these ones, these ones from the synagogue, they're the ones who rise up against Stephen here. They're the ones who question Stephen and his teaching. You know, of particular interest among the ones here who stand against Stephen is the mention of those from Cilicia. Now, this is of interest because of a certain young man named Saul of Tarsus. Just turn over to Acts 21 with me in verse 39. <clears throat> Acts 21, in verse 39, it says, But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarshish, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. Saul was from Cilicia. That's where he was from. Tarshish was a city in Cilicia. And the point is that it seems extremely likely that one of the men here who stands up in opposition to Stephen is Saul. That Stephen has been teaching in his synagogue, the synagogue where the Cilicians attend, which is where Saul goes. Stephen's been teaching there, and Saul is one of the men who stands against him, which would then explain why Saul is present at his stoning, 
And why Saul consents to his death. Just read chapter 7 with me. I know we know this, but verse 58. Chapter 7, verse 58, it says, And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Saul is there. Why? Because Stephen was in his synagogue. Stephen was one of the, was teaching in the synagogue he attended. And Saul, more than likely, was one of the ones who opposed him. At the end of verse 9, he were told the form that this opposition took. It says in verse 9, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. We're told that they disputed with Stephen. In other words, they questioned him. They argued or debated with Stephen and his teaching. Essentially, as Stephen was teaching in the synagogue, they would stand up and throw questions at him. They would question what he was saying. And Saul, as I said, was probably one of the ones who stands up and debates here with Stephen. Now, we need to remember here that Saul and others who debated with Stephen here were learned men. Okay, These are learned men who are asking Stephen questions. Learned men who are opposing his teaching. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what they believed. They knew what God's word said. They're learned men. And yet as they debate with Stephen, we're told in verse 10 that they could not get the better of him. It says in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. In other words, every time someone stood up to oppose Stephen as he's preaching, as he's teaching, Every time someone stood up, Stephen knocked them down. Stephen had the answer. Stephen rebutted them. Every question they posed, Stephen had a response. Now, Stephen here showed wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures that they could not match. Remember, this is people like Saul who'd been to the school of Gamaliel. They've been taught. They knew the Scriptures. And yet, here we've got Stephen. He just is able to match them with great wisdom, great understanding. And the question must then be asked, where does this wisdom and power to debate come from? Well, the answer, of course, lies in the fact of the Holy Ghost within, doesn't it? It lies in the fact that this man, Stephen, as Luke points out in verse 5, was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. This is why Stephen was able to give such answers to these learned men. The Spirit was empowering him. And really, that's the point of these verses here, isn't it? Stephen did great wonders and miracles. Verse 8, how? In the power of the Spirit. Stephen's preaching and teaching in the synagogues, how? In the power of the Spirit. Stephen is questioned, how does he answer the debate? In the power of the Spirit with great wisdom and understanding. The Spirit is the essential element here, isn't it? The Spirit's power within the whole way through. You see, Christ had told his disciples that, you know, when the time came, the Spirit would give them the answers. Give them the words to say. Just turn with me to Luke 12. The book of Luke. <clears throat> Luke chapter 12 and verse 11. It says, And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates and powers, take no thought how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Christ had promised that the Holy Ghost would teach them 
what to say. Turn also to chapter 21 of Luke and verse 15. Chapter 21, verse 15, it says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Again, Christ said he'd give them a mouth, he'd give them wisdom, which their adversaries couldn't answer. And you know, the apostles had already experienced the fulfillment of these words back in chapter 4, hadn't they? With Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin and Peter giving them great, a great answer, preaching to them, basically. And what was their response? They couldn't understand how these unlearned and ignorant men could answer them with such wisdom. See, Peter and John had already seen this happen in their lives. The apostles had seen the fulfillment of this promise from Christ. And now Stephen experiences the exact same thing. As Stephen stands there and he's preaching and teaching, the Spirit gives him the wisdom. The Spirit gives him the answers here to these learned men. You know, he has a wisdom here that is unparalleled. Why? Because it came from God, God himself. You know, Stephen here, he had a great mighty witness for the Lord. He was faithful in his service for the Lord, but you know, he could not have done any of it without the Spirit. That's the reality. That's the thing we need to understand here. He could not have done any of this without the power of the Spirit. He could not have done any of this if he wasn't a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. This is the key to his witness. This is the key to his service for the Lord. You know, God's desire is that like Stephen, we would be faithful servants. Faithful servants who would stand and witness boldly for him, boldly declare the truth, boldly defend the faith. You know, the reality is that like Stephen, we cannot hope to do it in our own strength. We cannot hope to serve the Lord and be faithful in our service and defend our faith if we're not empowered by the Spirit. We need the Spirit to control us from within. That's what Ephesians says, isn't it? It says to be filled with the Spirit. You're not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit must control us so that we might then be faithful and effective servants to Him. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Rubble was told the same thing. Just turn over there. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Saith the Lord's rubble needed to rely upon the power of the spirit, upon the Lord to accomplish the work. The same is true for all of us today. If we are going to be faithful servants, faithful witnesses for him, then we need to be controlled by the spirit. We need a spirit controlling from within. And that means walking in a right relationship with him. That means spending time in God's word each day so the spirit can enable us. The Spirit is in control. Rely upon Him and not upon ourselves. Secondly, now we see the false witness against Him. The false witness against Him. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 6, it says, Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard Him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon Him and caught Him and brought Him to the council. 
and set up false witness, uh, witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against his ho- this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this J- Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. You know, seeing they couldn't defeat Stephen in an open debate, his opponents now seek to destroy him instead. Basically, they want to put him to death. That's their end game here. That's what they're aiming towards. And their treatment of Stephen here closely parallels the treatment of Christ, doesn't it? It closely parallels how the Jewish leaders treated Christ. You know, they begin here by hiring men to speak lies about Stephen to bring false accusations against him. Verse 11, it says, Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. We're told that they suborned men. Now, this word is only found here in the New Testament. And basically, it's the idea that they hired men and taught them what to say. They paid men and gave them the phrases they wanted them to say. They wanted them to speak about Stephen. And the accusation that these men were taught to say was that Stephen had spoken blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so these men went spreading this accusation abroad. You know, the end game of all this really was to stir up the people against Stephen. That was their, that was their point of this. They wanted to stir up the people, get the people in a frenzy, get the people upset with Stephen, get the people against Stephen, and indeed the apostles. In verse 12 we're told, And they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and came upon him, and caught him, and brought him to the council. You see, they accomplished their task. They stirred up the people by these false accusations. You know, up until this point, the people had loved the apostles. Up until this point, the people had supported the apostles. Their hands of the the authorities were tied. Go back to chapter 5 with me in verse 26. (coughs) Excuse me. Chapter 5 and verse 26. Well, we're starting verse 25. It says, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence. Why? For they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. See, up until this point, the hands of the authorities were tied. Until this point, the authorities feared the people, feared that the people would rise up against them. And so they were very limited in what they did to the apostles. They threatened them and they let them go. They threatened them and beat them and let them go. Their hands were tied. But now as a result of these false accusations, popular opinion has turned. The populace has swayed. And now the opinion is against Stephen. The people are stirred up. They are in a frenzy against him. And quickly Stephen is arrested and he's brought before the council. And as he stands before the council, the Sanhedrin, we see that once again false witnesses are brought in to testify against him. Verse 13, it says, And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. 
you know, here we see these false witnesses come in and they testify against Stephen before the council. And here they add to their accusation that he blasphemed God and he blasphemed Moses. They add to that now by accusing him of blaspheming the temple and blaspheming the law. They accuse him of preaching that Jesus would destroy the temple and that Jesus would change the customs of Moses. Now it's interesting, isn't it, how similar the accusations are to those that were leveled against Christ. Just turn quickly back to Matthew 26 with me. Matthew 26 and begin reading verse 59. It says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. No, they did the same in the Christ, didn't they? They brought in false witnesses to accuse him. And the accusation is very similar. Very similar to the one that's laid here against Stephen. See, Stephen here is suffering exactly as Christ did. He's been accused of the same sort of things. Now, the question is, why would they make these accusations against Stephen? Why these accusations in particular? Well, I think it gives us evidence of what he's been teaching. It shows us what he's been teaching because evidently Stephen has been teaching that Jesus is greater than Moses, which he is. The Jews don't like that, but he's been teaching that. Evidently, he's been teaching that Jesus is God, which they see as blasphemy, don't they? Evidently, he's been teaching that Jesus is greater than the temple here on earth. He's been teaching that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And Stephen has been teaching these truths, and because they couldn't answer against him, they take his words, they twist them around, and they accuse him of blasphemy. Now, the reality is Stephen would never have blasphemed God. Stephen would never have blasphemed Moses. He would not have blasphemed the temple or the law. Stephen's a Jew. He would not have done these things. But they simply took his teachings concerning Christ and they twisted them around and made them into blasphemy. They accused him of something he hadn't done, just as they'd done with Christ. You know, the reason they accused him of blasphemy is because according to the law, the punishment for blasphemy is death. It's stoning. Just turn quickly to Leviticus 24 with me. <clears throat> Leviticus 24 and verse 16. Leviticus 24, verse 16, it says, He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. The Jews, this is what they wanted. They wanted Stephen here to be stoned to death. They're accusing him of blasphemy because they wanted him, according to the law, to be put to death. And as we know, they, they did indeed get their way, don't they? Okay, in the, at the end of chapter 7, they stone him to death for his faith. You know, Stephen here faced great opposition. Why? Because of his faithful service to the Lord. Because of his faithful witness 
for the Lord in the power of the Spirit. You know, Christ had told his disciples on many occasions that they would suffer this kind of opposition, this kind of persecution for his name, that they would be rejected as he was rejected. Let's just turn to a couple of passages. John chapter 15, first of all. John 15. John 15, verse 18, it says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Christ makes it abundantly clear, doesn't he? Christ says to them, if the world hate you, it's because they hated me first. Christ tells his disciples they will be rejected. They will be despised just like he was. They will suffer the same kind of shame, the same kind of ridicule, the same kind of opposition. In Matthew 5, Christ as part of the Beatitudes tells us that those who suffer for righteousness are blessed. Let's just turn there, Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 10. It says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Christ taught that it was a blessed thing to suffer for Christ. It was a blessed thing to suffer for righteousness. Why? Because there is a reward awaiting in heaven one day for those who suffer for him. For those who are falsely accused for him. And indeed Christ says here that they are to rejoice because the reward in heaven is great. It's not small, it's great. You know, Stephen no doubt knew this. I'm sure Stephen knew these teachings. He understood the fact that he was suffering for Christ. That he was being falsely accused for Christ. You know, this was a comfort to him as he stood before his accusers. You know, we likewise must understand that when we are faithful in serving the Lord, we will face opposition. It's a given. It's not a maybe. It's a given. The world will hate us as it hated him. We will face opposition in some form. We will be falsely accused in some way. People reject us. They will despise us and the message just as they rejected Christ. You know, we need to remember who we are suffering for. We need to remember that we are suffering for his name's sake. First Peter chapter 4, just turn there with me. First Peter 4. First Peter 4 verse 12, it says, Beloved, think and not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of 
but on your part, he is glorified. Now, First Peter 4, we're told that when we suffer for his name, we ought to rejoice. Why? Because we're counted worthy to suffer for him, to partake in his suffering. Beloved, when we are persecuted because we've been faithfully serving him in the power of the Spirit, then we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice in him, rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for him. Because the reality is when we are faithful, we will be opposed in some form. We will be persecuted in some form for our faithfulness to him. Lastly, now in this passage this morning, we see the compelling evidence. The compelling evidence. Look in verse 15 with me. It says, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been, the face of an angel. You know, Stephen has been faithful in his service to the Lord, faithful in serving through the power of the Spirit. Because of that, he has been falsely accused. And now as he stands before the Sanhedrin and they look upon him, they see that his face is as the face of an angel. You know, what a sight this must have been. Now think about it for a minute. Here's Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin. And these false witnesses have come in and they've accused him of things he didn't do. He's had to stand there and listen to these men tell lies about him, to accuse him of blaspheming his God, the God he serves, the God he loves. They've accused him of things he didn't do, things he didn't say. You know, Stephen here, we don't read anything, we just read that he keeps silent as he stands before them. He stands silently at peace. Why? Because he knows he's suffering for Christ. He's been opposed for Christ. And as all this takes place, the council look upon him and what they see is the face of an angel. The description here is of someone who is close to God and reflects some of his glory because they've been in his presence. You see, his face here reflects the glory of the Lord. The same glory that was seen in the face of Moses after he beheld God intimately. Exodus chapter 34 with me. Now we know this passage, but let's just quickly turn there. Exodus 34. Verse 29, it says, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, and he came down from the mount that Moses wist not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And, and when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. You know, Moses was in the presence of the Lord, and he came down, and his face reflected the glory of the Lord. And that's the idea here. Stephen's face is reflecting the glory of the Lord. You know, effectively what God is doing here, God is categorically stating, this man is my servant. The council here is accusing him of all these things. They're accusing him of blaspheming God, of blaspheming Moses. And God says, he's my servant. His face is enough. They could not deny what's before them. You know, Stephen didn't have to speak here in order to defend himself. The very glow of his face told everybody that he was the servant of God. Now, it was like God was saying, this man's not against Moses. This man is like Moses. This man is my servant. This man is my friend. 
know, his face was enough, enough of a testimony here to declare that he was God's servant. You know, likewise, when the world looks at us, they should see the reflected glory of God. You know, our lives ought to be enough evidence to prove that we are indeed his servants. Now, Matthew 5 verse 16 says that we are let our light shine before men. Why? So that they might glorify God. Let our light shine so that men may see the Lord and give glory to him. You know, opposition will come as we faithfully serve him in the power of the Spirit. But when that opposition comes, we just need to keep on faithfully serving him and let our light shine. Let our testimony do the talking. Let our testimony do the defending. Let our testimony give evidence that we are indeed his servants. You know, if that's going to be the case, then we need to be in the word daily, don't we? We need to daily be in the word, daily be in prayer, so that the spirit can change us from glory to glory into his image. 2 Corinthians 3 as we close, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, it says, But we all, with open face beholding as in the glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Once again, who does it? It's the Spirit. It's by the Spirit's power that we faithfully serve. It's by the Spirit's power that we face opposition and we are able to answer questions that are put to us. And it's by the Spirit that we are changed to reflect the glory of the Lord. You know, the, spirit, the Spirit working within can change us to be more like Him so that we might reflect His glory to the world around us. Now let us pray that like Stephen, we would be faithful servants. And then when opposition comes, we would let our testimony do the talking. That others would see the glory of the Lord reflected in us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this man, Stephen. Lord, this man who was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And Lord, he was a faithful servant for you. Lord, he was falsely accused. But Lord, as we stood before him, Lord, your glory was reflected in his face. And Lord, I pray you help all of us, Lord, to faithfully serve you, not in our power, but in your power, in the power of the Spirit. Lord, when that opposition comes, Lord, may you enable us, Lord, just to keep on faithfully serving you. And may, Lord, the world see in us you reflected in our testimony this day. Pray this in your name, Jesus' name.